If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of James, the fifth chapter. We are closing out our series over the next two weeks here, this week and next week, and then we'll be done with this wonderful book and the letter that was written by the brother of Jesus to uh, inspire the church to be faithful. And so we're in James chapter 5 this morning, and uh, hopefully we can utilize it to to give us a better understanding of what it is to to be rich in this world and how we should treat one another as well as going through the struggles of life. Um, After the Revolutionary War, many of the leading uh, preachers in in the 13 original colonies began to see it as an opportunity to expand the ministry and to head west as the nation was expanding and things were growing and making a difference in the western frontier. A lot of them began to head out and started in that first little area called Kentucky, And as they were in there, some of these preachers, just to let you know, preachers have the temptations just like everybody else do. And and sometimes we fail and we fall to them as well. But originally, these preachers, when they headed into Kentucky to, to be able to spread the kingdom of God, some things changed in their perspectives. One of these men, by the name of Elijah Craig, he he went into Kentucky and he purchased a thousand acres and began to work that land and began to explore and gather more lands and more territory and things. He moved into that to becoming a land speculator and he established in Kentucky the very first sawmill and grist mill and he developed that into a paper mill. And and one observer of that generation noted this about this preacher, Elijah Craig. He said, he said that the business activities impaired his ministerial usefulness. In other words, he was spending more time making money than he was leading the church. Another preacher who left Virginia for Kentucky was another man by the name of John Taylor. John Taylor, he also became sidetracked from the spiritual matters and began to pursue finances as well. He wrote now in his own personal journal these statements about hard manual labor that it needed to make a successful living on the frontier. This is what he said, We had no time to pause and think but go right on to work. And after two years, he wrote in his journal and he was able to boast this statement. I was the richest man in the county where I lived. How's that for the preacher? Most preachers here cannot say that. However, he had to admit that through the course of his two years, I preached but little. So his pursuit of holiness changed to a pursuit of finance. Both of those men, they endured hardships and they struggled when they were preachers before that westward expansion in the revolution. They suffered with lack of funds and lack of food and lack of things to do and to live by. However, when they became zealous for more, when they left Virginia, we see that things changed. There was one zealous minister in Virginia by the name of Samuel Harris. He refused to take someone into court who owed him a lot of money. And his reason for doing that was this. He said he didn't want to lose time in a lawsuit that he could spend preaching to save souls. Quite a difference. Now, there was another fellow by the name of James Girard, who also, in his ministry, headed out to Kentucky. And he began to pursue other things as well. He became the first governor of the state. 
And, and there was a, a, a historian there by the name of Robert Simple. And he wrote this about him. He says, For the honors of men, he resigned the office of God. He relinquished the clerical robe for the more splendid mantle of human power. Semple then also spoke of another preacher who had, who had left the ministry and began to pursue political fame and fortune as well from the Roanoke Association in Virginia. He said he was misled by ambition and he set himself up as a candidate for Congress. Now, now understand, pursuing politics does not mean that you have to give away your Christianity. But sometimes we look at politicians to say today and we think they've already done that. But these were preachers. We would think that their first and foremost goal and drive in life was to take the gospel message and change the world in which they lived. However, these men did not do that. Semple suggested in his writings that these two men loved political power more than they loved the pursuit of the spiritual. A quest for wealth and power sometimes consumes all of our energies because we've got to have just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. There's no man left that, that gains his life and power and wealth that doesn't think there could be just a little bit more if he worked a little bit harder, if he pursued a little bit stronger. James now sees these wealthy people as he's writing in the book here, this letter to us. He sees wealthy people who are facing the temptation of surrendering everything in Christ and going after God. But when he's writing... And we get to James chapter 5, he's got a whole different audience, and the way and the manner in which he writes is going to be unique. John Milton, who was a preacher, he, he said that there is nothing that makes a man rich and strong but that which they carry inside of them. Wealth is of the heart, not of the hand. And yet even godly men can be tempted to pursue money and power. If you're rich... James is going to tell us we need to beware of the love of money that drives men to do things for more. And if you're not rich, he tells us we need to be patient because God's blessings will come even through the struggles and the trials that we face on a daily basis. So the first thing we see is that the pursuit of wealth has its own problems. And so James is going to write this warning to the rich. Beginning in verse 1, he says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl. For your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures in the last days. We consider that. James then, he's kind of capitalizing on what he said back in James chapter 4 about people trying to become worldly in their perspective of life. And he's centering all of that on their arrogance and on their pride and, and, and their planning life without being dependent upon God. They're trying to become dependent upon themselves. And so people who focus on the finances in life, they sometimes become these self-centered businessmen. Now here in James chapter 5, he's leveling an indictment against these wealthy individuals, these landowners, as we'll come to see, because of how they're treating the people that work for them. There were a lot of very wealthy people up around the, the area of Galilee and really in the Roman Empire because if you were a friend to Rome, you were able to be financially taken care of. And so Rome would give you power. They would take land and give it to people that they could trust to oversee and that way they guaranteed 
that even though Rome was so far away, they knew that the people they put in these positions in whom they were financially taken care of would see to it that everybody stayed intact within the Roman government. And so there was a lot of the rich people in the area that were taking these things. These landowners here in James chapter 5, they probably belonged to this same group of people that James was speaking about in James chapter 2 verse 6 when he called them the rich. Most likely they weren't Christians, but they were taking advantage of Christians by the way they were treating them. You see, the possession of wealth really isn't an evil thing. It's not a sin to be wealthy. But it changes from when it becomes your pursuit. Jesus says you can't love both money and God. You can't serve two masters. And it's not having money that is sinful. We're told by Jesus that it is the love of money that is the root of all evil. And God has blessed some people through the years with great riches. And they've been able to use those riches to do wonderful things for the kingdom of God. But it's when we take our focus off that kingdom and we start focusing on the money itself where their problems begin to arise. You see, these wealthy individuals were using their wealth for a self-indulgent actions that led to the death of innocent, righteous people. That's what James is going to sell us. That everything that they're doing for their money actually drives them forward to, to kill other people around them. It's interesting to note that these wealthy bullies aren't called to repentance. James doesn't tell them repent. What he tells them is, you need to weep and you need to howl. You need to cry out because there's a lot of things going to come upon you here in a moment. He's bringing forth a judgment against them. Same thing as in Isaiah chapter 13, verse 6, it says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty it will come. In Amos chapter 8, verse 3, it says, The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord. So many dead bodies, they are, they are thrown everywhere in silence. Miseries, he tells us, are coming upon these people because of the abuse of the power that they have because of their finances. There's something about money that makes men sometimes do the unthinkable thing. It's amazing to me what people will do just to get a dollar or to get ten or to get a hundred or to get a million. They're willing to sacrifice and sell out anything in order for that mighty buck. Well, James wants his readers to know that God hears and he understands the cries of those who are being mistreated. Because they're unfair in the way that they're treating them is crying out to God. And so this money that they're not making because of the landowners cheating them is crying out to God for justice. <coughs> in the ancient world, wealth took three primary roles. One, it was, it was based on food how much food you could have and have abundance left over. It was based on your clothing and the, the exquisiteness of it. It was based upon all the different precious metals and jewels that you could have. Those were the three ways that people were recognized for having a lot of money if they had a lot of those things. And so James attacks these in his statement here that all of these things, he says, your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver are corroded. And so when we consider everything that's taking place with them, when owners carelessly stored their clothes, back in that day, the moths would come in and eat them. I mean, they, they did not have the type of clothing we have today that's made out of synthetics and made out of polyesters and made out of these things that moths don't want to eat. 
They were made out of the things from the land, the fibers from the cotton and from the, the wool. And, and if you can think back not too far ago, there was a generation here in America that used to put mothballs in their closets or in their chest to keep the moths from coming in. But if you had too much clothing to wear, you just stored it. And it became consumed by the moths. Same thing with gold. Although gold doesn't actually rust, it does become corroded. And an indictment against these people was they had so much gold that they let it sit and it became corroded because of their greed. Now, corrosion of gold and silver affects the wealthy in two ways. First, it testifies against them producing evidence of their greed and their lack of concern for other people because they're just amassing it. They're storing everything up, they're hoarding it, they're keeping it. For what? For it just to corrode. The second way that it testifies against them is this, that it will consume their flesh as fire, he tells us. So their chief goal is to make money, and we get this, this unbelievable image of everything just burning them down. Instead of depending on God, these wealthy Scrooges, you remember Ebenezer Scrooge, don't you? He hoarded everything to the, to the demise of the people within his own community. And finally... Out of the fear of those three ghosts, the past, the present, and the future, he recognized what he was doing, and he understood what his end would be, and so it changed his heart. I wonder if these people that James is speaking about, whether they might have changed their heart as well. They resemble people somewhat in a burning building that are trying to stay in the fire and gather whatever they can grab because it's greedy. And they're willing to sacrifice even their life at times, to make sure they get what they treasure. Now, Basil the Great, he lived during the, the fourth century, and in, in, in 378 AD, he saw his country in which he lived suffer floods and then a drought during that time frame. And people were starving and, and dying as a result of everything that happened. He preached against the wealthy hoarders of his generation. And, and he, he said they, they're letting their wheat rot while men die of hunger. Rather than sharing with what they had, they just let it go to waste. Now he had some property and he sold his property. He, he used the money then to give to the poor so that they would have food. And he challenged the poor as well to give to those who were poorer than them to share the food in which he's given him. He was such a, uh, tried to intercede for them with the rich and begged and pleaded with the rich to give up of what they had to, to meet the needs of people around him. He literally washed the feet of those who were poor. And he fed those who were starving of hunger out of everything that he had. He made this statement when he wrote. He said, if you are reduced to your last loaf of bread and a beggar appears at your door, then take that loaf from your closet and lift it to your hands to heaven and say this prayer, O Lord, I have but this one loaf which you see before you. Hunger lies in wait for me. But I worship your commandments more than all other things. And therefore, this little I have, I give to my brother who suffers from hunger. You see, that's the attitude that James wants us to have. What little we may have, we share with other people. We give it as a gift instead of hoarding it back for ourselves. The importance of giving these gifts is an indictment against the rich. And so, in James chapter 5, verses 4 through 6, he begins writing again, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields 
which you kept back by fraud are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered righteous person. He does not resist you. In those days, there were no labor laws. And so, really, if you were a, a landowner, if you were a businessman, you could treat your employer, employees however you wanted to treat them. You could pay them whatever you wanted to pay them. There was nothing to protect them at all. And so, they defrauded their workers. They cheated them of their wages at times. And, and so, so, their wages cry out like the, like the blood of Abel did when he was killed. They want vengeance. And a just God would not ignore the cry that comes from these swindled workers. Therefore, those who had obtained their riches in a way that was illegitimate, illegitimate should weep. They should cry. They should howl. They should wail. They should just scream out to God because what's going to come upon them is disastrous because of the way they're treating these people. And so the sin of injustice occupies center stage as these wealthy people fail to meet the needs and to pay proper wages for those who are laboring in their fields. Now, in New Testament Palestine, there were, there were farmers who would hire workers each day. And they do that somewhat even in California and some of the southern states when they have these big fields that need to be harvested. So they go out and they, and they would hire people to come and work in their fields that day. And so they would work and they would work. Now the thing was, they would give them just enough money to make them come back tomorrow. And some of them would withhold paying them until the harvest was done to make sure that the workers didn't leave. All the while, these workers are starving because they needed that day-to-day money just to provide for their necessities for that night. And the rich were cheating them. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 14 and 15, there is a statement that God makes against this type of livelihood. He says, You shall not oppress the hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or is one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry out against you to the Lord, and you be found guilty of sin. James's readers, they had actually worked in the fields, and these wealthy landowners were withholding their pay from them, and the injustice that they were doing was displeasing to God, and now he is saying to James, their time is short-lived. As we face hardships in daily life, we have to have complete confidence that God is going to provide for us each and every day. I would rather be poor and rely on God to know that He's going to meet my needs daily than have all the money in the world and rely on myself. We can trust God will provide as long as we live by faith. Now these, these wealthy landowners that he's talking about here in James chapter 5, these, these, they were living by selfish luxuries. Just as that rich man did in, the, in, in Luke chapter 16 that Jesus talked about. A rich man and a poor man by the name of Lazarus. And the rich man had everything and Lazarus had nothing. But when they died, you look at where they both ended up. The rich man ended up in Hades. And the poor man ended up 
and paradise. And God listens to the cry of those who have been treated unfairly. James, he gives a, a really colorful description here of what lies ahead for these people. He, he likens it to a fattened calf that's getting ready for slaughter. And if you've ever been around cattle, and, and, and you know that it's almost a drought season out there, and there's not much land that is there for them to eat on. The grass is withered and gone, and there's scarcity any out there. And so you take out the bale of hay, or you drop forth the, the grain for them to eat, and you know what happens. They rush in. And then that big bully steer, or the bull, he's shoving everybody else around, trying to get it to himself, and he's keeping everybody else away because he's hoarding it for himself. And we watch that. And that's what James is likening these people to, these wealthy landowners. They're pushing and shoving everybody out so they can get more. It doesn't matter if the others are starving. And so he likens them to this, but he says, but you don't understand. Just like that, that steer doesn't understand Tomorrow is the day of slaughter. There's judgment coming. And all he's doing is fattening himself up. And the fatter he is, the more he's going to be the first one that's slaughtered. And James says, you've got to liken yourselves not to that. So they're pampering themselves with their wealth while the day of slaughter or the day of divine judgment for their evil actions is just around the corner. You see, greed, I think, has a way of clouding our vision, doesn't it? It keeps us from seeing the reality of things. So a final indictment is, is against this wealthy oppressor. James accusing them of having a, a violence against the poor, so much so that they're murdering innocent and righteous people. The Jewish tradition taught us this, that, that a person could murder another either by judicial murder or be, by depriving their neighbor of making a living. So they permitted them to take him to court and have him killed. They permitted them to, with, to withdraw everything from your neighbor so they had nothing and they starved to death. And it was okay. And we look at that and we think, well, that, that's got to be, you know, that's not, that's not right. And the rich were not satisfied with just cheating the workers out of their wages. They went so far as to use their influence to condemn them and to eventually kill them because they were speaking out against them. Listen to what it says in Exodus 23, 6. It says, You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. What it means is the poor man has taken you to court, and you're going you're gonna to corrupt the justice system for your favor to go after him. You can't do that. Matter of fact, in Deuteronomy 24, 17 and 18, it says something very similar when it says, You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or the fatherless, or take a widow's garment in pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. So some who were wrongfully drawn into court before the judges, they were, through harsh treatment, eventually put to death because they spoke out against somebody who was rich. That doesn't happen in our court system today, does it? That when you speak out against the rich, that they've got money enough to buy off the judge? but it was happening them. And so James 2, verse 6 tells us, But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? Are the ones who drag you into court? The second thing we learn in this passage of Scripture is this, that patient endurance of suffering produces a proper perspective on life. 
So he lays out this position, petition for us to persevere, even in the struggles and the trials of life. So let's move on and read, beginning in verse 7. He says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth? Be patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door as an example of suffering and patience, brothers. Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So as we enter this little section of the text, we're introduced to, uh, uh, again, James is talking with his Christian brothers. This previous little section was about those who really weren't being Christians and they weren't a part of the church and how they were defrauding and cheating the church and the Christians. And now he comes back to his Christian brothers and he wants them to listen. Now this is about them. He says, you need to listen because I know that you have been mistreated and you're the victims in all of this. So here he gives his readers an incentive to hang in there, to don't give up, be steadfast. He wants them to establish their heart. In other words, get firmly fixed on something and don't move, don't lose this. And so he says, you need to have this. He says, we all know the trials and the afflictions that you're facing. And oftentimes those trials and sufferings, they produce grumblings and groanings within us and complaining. And so James tells them, don't go there. Don't even, don't even go there. Just be patient because God sees everything that's happening. Being patient expects an attitude of long-suffering. I don't like that word, do you? Long-suffering. That's another way of translating this. Because it means you're going to have a long time of suffering. And he says, hang in there. I know that you're going to suffer for quite a while. It's going to be it's gonna maybe years that you're going to suffer. It may be weeks. We don't know how long it is, but you've got to hang in there. However long it is, hang in there. Don't give up. And so he tells them that through all this, if they're going to be ready to endure all that comes their way without complaining, without grumbling, without doing anything and being disobedient to God, as long as they remain obedient to God, he will see and he will respond. Persecution comes to all of us in different ways, different fashions. But we all have the opportunity to develop perseverance and stamina when we go through it. That's what he tells us there at the very beginning of the book, that we ought to consider it all joy, my brothers, when we face these trials. Eventually, Jesus is going to bring judgment to those who are the oppressors. And so listen to what he tells us in 2 Thessalonians chapter, 2, chapter 1, verses 5-10. through 10. Paul writes to the church there and he says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might, when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. 
So instead of taking vengeance into our own hands, James is saying, wait. Just wait. It's coming. Jesus is going to bring it when he comes. You just got to hang in there. And if you can hang in there just a little bit longer, he's going to take care of that. Christians are to trust that God will perform justice, even in this unjust world. And he's going to bring punishment and judgment on those who are the source of our problems. Listen to what he tells us in Romans chapter 12. Paul writes this. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So we don't keep it to ourselves. We don't take it upon ourselves to do it. Just trust that God is going to deal with it. He sees what you're going through, and He will act. A lot of times the rich have a way of oppressing the poor. We even see it today. This is nothing new. It's been going on generation after generation. But often, the people who are the oppressed, the people who are struggling... They turn and they fight and they take vengeance. But vengeance is God's. And so James is telling us we need to be patient and wait in this. The hardworking farmer shows us an example of patience as he waits for God to supply the rain. He he plants it. God waters it. And he waits. And as the fruit begins to grow, he waters it again. And now it's time to harvest. But it doesn't happen immediately. You've got to be patient because God is involved in the whole thing, from the planting of the seed to the harvest season. But it doesn't happen immediately. And the same thing is true about His return. He tells us in Deuteronomy eleven fourteen, He will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. And James calls for his readers for the same demonstrations of trust that they face in persecution. Just hang in there. God will provide at the right time. So then as we move into verse 8, he urges us to have patience and courage because the return of Jesus is so very near. I mean, it's going to happen. If you can just hang on. You remember when the disciples were there and Jesus ascended into heaven and they're staring up in the clouds, just kind of gawking there, and the angel says, what are you doing? The same Jesus who ascended into heaven, he's coming back the same way, but you need to get into town. You need to go do what he told you to do. Don't just stand there. Get busy. But wait. They thought he was coming back in their lifetime. They were anticipating it. You know, he may return in our lifetime. There may be some of us who will not die before he comes. But we've got to wait. Because his return is very clear. It's coming soon. It's coming very soon. And so we see in Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 13, he says, For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, which is what? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we need to understand things from God's perspective. And His perspective is a little bit different than ours. We may think He's taking forever, But the reality is, is but a moment. And so in 2 Peter 3, verse 8, he tells us, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord 
One day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. Today is the day of our salvation. Because it is the day of the Lord. But what moment in this day will it take place? We don't know. Verse 9 points out that their complaining attitude hinders them from developing this heart of patience. Because they're groaning, complaining about all this stuff, they're not, they're not focusing on being patient. So they're grumbling. And grumbling involves a lot of criticism and involves all this fault finding against one another. They actually were starting to blame each other for their problems. And they shouldn't be doing that. I mean, their hardships, they may have begun to blame each other, but we need to remember that God's going to judge those who grumble as well. The Old Testament prophets and Job are two wonderful examples that he lays out. They went through a lot of problems. They were persecuted. They were, they were tortured. They, they were killed. Job, you think about him, and they knew about Job. Job was a man who was very, very wealthy. He was very respected in his community. And all of a sudden, Satan recognizes him because God points him out. And God says, hey, my servant Job, he's a wonderful guy. Satan said, I, I, I've got everybody else in the world. And, and God says, you don't have Job. And Job, Job's going to be right there. Satan says, yeah, well, you're protecting him. God says, I won't. But you can't take his life. And we see how that plays out. And Job and everything that he went through, and even his friends and his wife were trying to get him to curse God and die. And Job refuses to do any of that. And he patiently waits for God to act. And in the end of the story, after all of his hardships, after all of his loss, he is blessed ten times more than before. God sees and God hears, and we have to understand he is there with us. James encourages them in James chapter 1, verse 2, that they ought to count it all joy that they are in good company with those who suffer. Hardships help to build godliness in our lives and mature us in our faith. Well, there's a request for reverence for God. And we see that here in verse 12. He says, but above all, my brothers do not swear either by heaven or by earth, or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes, and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. We think, as he's, as he's laying out this final thing here, James comes back to our Christian speech and how we talk, because our language is important. And it's very evident when somebody is, is walking right with God, because what they, what they talk about is good. And those who are grumbling against God and they feel that there's injustices and he's not taking care of them, we immediately hear those words too and their language and their speech is different. What's going on is here is these people are facing hardships and they're struggling because these wealthy landowners are oppressing them. They are now wanting to take them to court and they're wanting to accuse them and they're saying, I'm going to swear by this and I swear by that. And they're throwing out all these oaths before men and he's saying, no, you don't need to do that. You've got to be cautious about it. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. The exact same things that Jesus was challenging us to do as well. See, they've got to be honest in their speech so that we don't have to swear by this or by that. We all live with struggles each and every day. Just look at our election. There hasn't been any honesty on either side. Everybody is lying and everybody is swearing that this is right and this is wrong. So how do we know the truth? 
Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no, no. And James echoes him here. I wonder if he used to hear this <laughs> when he was growing up as a little brother to Jesus. Yeah. James, did you uh, take care of the cats? Did you feed them today? Yeah, yeah I, I swear I did, Jesus. <laughs> no, no, just yes or no. You get it, don't you? And so he responds to us the same way. And, and, and although James's words primarily prohibit the use of this profanity and, and, and warning about making promises and swearing oaths and involving heaven and earth and swearing upon God, Christians who face suffering as well, they're easily tempted to try and swear that they will do things to get themselves out of trouble. I mean, we do it all the time, don't we? God, if you take care of this, I promise. You know? Dad, if you'll get me this, I promise I'll do. Right? We're, we're always that way. We're always making these promises. Well, in the New Testament period, the people were doing the same thing. They would often make these oaths by saying, by my life or by my head. To give more authority to it, they might say, by God in heaven or by something else. Jesus condemned people in taking these types of oaths. So in Matthew chapter 23, verses 16 through 22, this is how he puts it. He says, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. He says, You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? It's important. And then he goes on, he says, he says, and you say, if someone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar, swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. James wants his readers to understand that Christians, even in our speech, we ought to be set apart as honest and true. So they know that we're faithful with what we say. You see, being a Christian is life-changing. And there has to be a direct confrontation with the sinful man. We've got to put him aside. We've got to bury him. We don't need to let him come back in. There's got to be a change. Back in 1840, 47-year-old General Sam Houston retired from being president of the Republic of Texas. Well, he married 21-year-old Margaret Moffat Lee. She was the daughter of a minister from a from very uh, polite, proper town in, in southern Alabama. And her father was a minister, and she was very faithful to God as well. A lot of people thought that their marriage wasn't going to last because of their age, because he was 47, she was 21. But then they really thought, no, that's not going to be it. What's going to tear this marriage apart is their lifestyles. She is a godly young woman, and he is a reprobate. His, his, his lifestyle consisted of alcoholism, and we see his exploits and the things that he's done, and yet now we find him in this marriage. And after the wedding, listen to this, Margaret 
began to work diligently at changing his character. And I think there's a lot of women who do that even today. They marry the bad boy and they hope when he marry him, I can change him. But she begins to do this. And she remained there faithful to him, constantly assuring him and reassuring him that she loved him and she was going to be with him and she was never going to leave him. And she encouraged him to, one, to stop drinking alcohol as much as he'd been drinking because it was shortening his life. Slowly but surely, he began to put the alcohol aside and his health began to improve. After nearly 10 years of marriage, Sam Houston describes his appreciation for his wife, Margaret, in his letter that he writes to his cousin. And he says this. He says, It has been my lot to be happily united to a wife that I love. And so far we have a young scion of the old stock. My wife is pious and her great desire is that Sam, their newborn son, should be reared in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. It is likewise my desire, you have, I doubt, not, you, you have, I doubt not, heard that my wife controls me well, and has reformed me in many respects. Well, this is pretty true, he says. She gets all the credit for my good actions, and I have to endure all the censure of my bad ones. And in 1854, Sam Houston was baptized in Independence, Texas by a pioneer preacher. And after the baptism, someone asked him if all of his sins had been washed away. And Sam Houston made this reply. He said, I hope so. But if they were all washed away, the Lord helped the fish down there. See, although we have struggles in life, and we may want Houston to give the credit to God, he gives the credit to his life change to his wife because of her patient endurance of who he was and by her godly character, she won him over to Christ. And James is challenging us, be patient. Even in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the horrible things that are going on in your life, when people are oppressing you, be patient. Because in your patience, there can be things that are wonderfully done to those around you. Peter's appeal to wives in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, I think is very powerful. Because there's a lot of women that marry men, and they're very patient now have to wait. And it's a shame that the men are not the ones who are leading out in faith. Because that is our challenge, men, as the spiritual leaders of our household. We are to lead our families. But we have relegated a lot of that to our wives and to the women. So Peter makes this statement. He says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. So that even if some do not obey the word, they be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. We need to bring about a change in people's lives, even under our persecution. Because you see, the change was made for us in the life of one who gave his life on a cross. He surrendered everything that this world had to offer. Matter of fact, he could have had the whole world. Satan offered it to him there in the wilderness during those first 40 days before he headed out into his ministry. Satan said, I'll surrender it all to you. All the wealth, all the power, all the kingdoms of this world will be yours. All you have to do is bow down and surrender to me. 
But Jesus knew that he had to go to the cross. And at the cross, the world would be won. Because the final payment for sin would be given. Why do we want the wealth of this world? Because it's just going to stay here when we pass. Well, I want treasures of heaven. So I want to encourage you to take all the trophies, take all the wealth, all the honors that you get in this world and lay them down at the cross of Christ. Accept Him as your Lord and as your Savior. Let's stand together.